0: Father, I pray for those, God, who, <clears throat> who say to you today, God, I need you. I need you uh, in my family uh, to do a miracle. I need you in my relationships, Father, to bring about supernatural restoration. I need you, Father, today uh, to work out financial difficulties and to give me direction. God, I, I, I need you physically uh, because, God, I feel like the pain is unbearable. God, I pray that you would do what I cannot do what I have not been able to uh, cause or promote or to uh, bring into fruition, Lord, I ask that You would take over. And God, that You would supply strength and grace and power and peace and restitution. God, I ask this so that I might glorify You, so that my situation might bring You glory. So Lord, I pray strength and power. I pray peace. Lord, I pray blessing upon those who said, God, I need you and I will stand before you, before a holy God and ask for your help and ask for your blessing, ask for your wisdom, ask for your discernment, ask for your strength. And so, Lord, as we ask, as your children, we know that you're faithful and good to hear our prayers. We know, Lord, that as we confess to you, you hear. And Lord, you are the God who is there. So, God, I pray for strength and power and and richness. I pray for peace. For healing. Lord for financial stability. To come upon those who have stood and say, God I need you today. And I pray this for your glory oh Lord. In the name of Jesus our Savior we pray. Amen. We are continuing in our series. Uh, From triumph to tragedy. The life of David. Next week will be the last week. So I encourage you to read chapter 12. Um, First 2 Samuel chapter 12. Today we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And uh, <clears throat> as we look at David, you know, the most popular, two of the most popular stories in all the Bible. And again, people who don't go to church, people who are not believers, <clears throat> they have at least heard these stories. And most of them know these stories. And the two most popular ones, probably almost in the Old Testament, are about David. The first one's David and Goliath. Everybody's heard that one. I mean, we'll we'll turn on the TV today, and at some point they'll mention something about David versus Goliath. You know what I mean? We watch college football. If you watch a couple enough bowl games, they'll use that uh, they'll use that analogy. Okay, but also the second most popular story that everybody's heard of at least, whether they've read it or not, is David and Bathsheba. How David and Bathsheba come into sin, and and that's the one we're going to read today. And uh, you probably read it this last week. And in what's what's interesting. Is unlike Hollywood, the Bible will not promote or endear or make you think that this was a really good idea. Okay, uh, you're going to see as you read through this story. It is a story of tragedy. That, that's exactly what it is. As a matter of fact, my title is the sinking of the Titanic. I hope you can see those two uh, how they come together. Okay, the sinking of the Titanic. The Titanic, when uh, when it was set to sail, was regarded as the most magnificent ship that had ever been built. Matter of fact, one magazine reporting before the Titanic went out uh, said this, it quoted this, it says, the captain of the Titanic uh, may, uh, by any at any time, may by simply moving an electric switch make the doors watertight throughout the entire vessel, making the vessel virtually unsinkable. There were those who believed that the Titanic was unsinkable. It had all the modern accoutrements. I mean, it was a finely crafted vessel, much larger, much more luxurious, and supposedly, by some, virtually, not not really, but virtually, unsinkable. But we know what happened. And, and there are multiple reasons for why the tan- Titanic sank. You know, one, some say because of the speed of which it was moving when it hit the ice uh, through icy waters. There were messages that were sent out. Uh, Some were ignored, some were never saved, some of them never got to the captain. Uh, And and it also was thought, you know, it's a clear night, the moon is out, we'll be able to see see anything that's coming about, we'll be able to uh, make sure that we avoid any kind of pitfalls, but you know what happened. Uh, Sure enough, the Titanic going about 40 miles an hour struck that iceberg and it just ripped it apart and um, 60% of the people on board died. They drowned in freezing waters. And why did that happen? Well, it it happened for a lot of the same reasons we'll see that David fell, because they, one, they didn't believe it could happen. There was a spirit of arrogance. Uh, There was a spirit of we got it all taken care of. They were very proud of what they had. We worked hard for this. We'll be fine. We'll be okay. But in fact, that wasn't the case. So as we look at this story about David, I think it's also important to remember this fact. There but the grace of God go you and I. And why do I say that? I say that because of this. Because all of us have the propensity to sin greatly. We really do. All it takes is for that seed of bitterness, of entitlement, of anger, of lust, of greed. All you got to do is just feed it. Start feeding it. Mentally telling yourself it's okay. Get other people that you know will agree with you to tell them, watch movies that endorse whatever it is that you want to do. Read books that endorse that mentality and that philosophy and that lifestyle. Just feel your mind and your heart. And you can get there. Matter of fact, you will get there. You think about the great people in the Bible. I mean, start off with Adam and Eve, you know, Eve sees something. She desires it. Same word used for David. She desires it. It, It's the one that I don't have. It's the piece of fruit that I can't get to. Noah gets drunk. Moses commits murder. Jacob constantly lying. Abraham, the father of the faith, so to speak, of the nation, lies and keeps saying this isn't his wife because he gets scared. Even in New Testament we see Peter who curses God and says he knows nothing of Jesus. All you gotta do is feed those little sins and watch them grow. As we look at this story, you know the, you know kind of know the background, and I'll tell it to you, and then we're gonna read it. We'll see David staying in Jerusalem. We'll see David hanging out in bed. We'll see David seeing Bathsheba and desiring her. David will send a messenger, and you'll see the motif here. You'll see one of the the genres in this uh, particular. Um, story is this you'll keep seeing this word show up and David sent nothing wrong with sending uh, when you're a person of authority or in management but he starts to send people for himself to justify his sin to take care of his mess and so it's a complete abuse of authority but David sends his messengers to find out about Bathsheba he learns Bathsheba is married to one of his best soldiers David sends messengers to bring her David sleeps with her He sends her home, she becomes pregnant, and David commits murder. That's the story in a nutshell right there. Uh, So let's read it. you have your Bibles, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. And in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. In the spring, and the reason the, the writer, the author of Second Samuel indicates that, because that was a time when wars would typically start, because in the winter there were multiple reasons they usually didn't fight during that period of time. Uh, one, because if you had chariots and men, if it was wet, it was very difficult to maneuver. Not to mention, uh, what would you eat? I mean, uh, they didn't have the instant meals they could send out on the field at that time. I mean, uh, so you had to have the kind of springtime. The, the harvest had to come in. And so it was a time when battles were normally fought. And And David has been highly successful. I mean, he's won every battle he's been in virtually at this point, uh, ex- with the exception of one. And then he ends up really winning that war as well. So he's been highly successful. It's a good time. It's a favorable time. And, you know, he's been home for the winter here comes the spring. And the author seems to be indicating to us that that probably wasn't a good thing. And probably if you make reference to first Samuel chapter eight, verse 19, one of the things that people wanted when they said, cried out for kings, we want a king who will go before us in battle, who will go out to war with us. And David certainly is not meeting that desired objective of the people at this point. <clears throat> He's decided, you know, I'm in control. Things are good. I don't have to go out there, so he sends Joab. Matter of fact, that's exactly what it says. It's the first time we we see that word sent. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites. Okay, and so they've been successful, but the Bible says, but David remains in Jerusalem. He stays home. Now, the king didn't necessarily have to go stay out in the battle the whole time, but it was very encouraging. It really increased morale for the king to come out, at least from time to time, certainly at the beginning of the battle and, and issue a charge. But David has chosen to just stay home, period. I'm in control. We're going to be fine. They don't need me. I'll be good here. So, late one afternoon, a matter of fact, your translation may say one evening, but I did a little research on that. And actually, what's happening here, It's it's right before dusk. It's right... Uh, It's right before the sun goes down. So it's still daylight. So your translation, a more accurate translation would be um, late one afternoon. David got up from his bed. Now, what does that tell you? It's late in the afternoon and he's in bed. Either he's been in bed all day or he's taking a nap before bedtime, which tells me he's staying up late at night. And he's probably not meditating on Scripture, by the way. So anyway, David's kind of showing a spirit of lackadaisicalness. He's probably not doing king work uh, during this time at night. Uh but he's probably up a lot. And so he's been in bed. So here he is in bed. <coughs> Excuse me. And he got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David, what does he do? Sent. See that word? David sent someone to find out about her. Now, that's a bad start right there. You say, why is that a bad start? Well, let's see. David's got about nine wives and multiple concubines. He's all he's taken care of in the marriage side. All right, uh, he don't he doesn't need anybody else at this point. So we're not talking about two singles like a you know two twenty one year old singles. And he goes, let's find out who that is. No, he doesn't need to find out who it is. I mean, he's he's got a, he's got multiple wives at this point. So we're starting off. Well, he's just looking. Oh, he's doing more than looking. Okay, he's way beyond the look at this point. And he sends someone, he brings someone into this mess to help him sin, to help him sin well, so to speak. You know, it's interesting, uh, John Owens, the great Puritan preacher said this one time. He said, he said, look, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's a good, that's a good word right there. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And at this point, David is not killing sin. He's inviting it. He's enticing it, just like it talks about in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. And so, continue here. David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Like, I don't know that we really have to go that far. I didn't tell you who it is. And they probably do go, but they tell him. let me tell you who that is. And they're asking in a very polite manner. They're they're answering the question by asking a question. Um, your bodyguard, Elam, that's his daughter. Matter of fact, Uriah, this isn't just any soldier. This is one of his mighty men. One of the men who, when he was under attack, kind of came around him and protected him. Who literally offered their life in protection of David, So he's one of his most trusted elite guards. So he's got his personal bodyguard, and now he's got one of his best soldiers. And if that's not enough, you know whose granddaughter Bathsheba is? Ahithophel. Now, who's Ahithophel? Ahithophel is David's most trusted counselor and advisor. He's the one who later on, by the way, remember when Absalom decides that he's going to take... Over the kingdom, guess who co-inspires with him? Ahithophel, David's counselor and advisor. You think that this doesn't bother Ahithophel as a grandfather? Matter of fact, this is going to cost David so enormous, in such an enormous manner, he can't even begin to fathom. And you know why? I've shared with you before, I only have one original statement. I made this one up. Everything else, I read in a book somewhere. Okay? It's this. Sin makes you stupid. David looked a little too long, and from this point on, David is stupid. Okay? I'm all right, I looked. I probably shouldn't have looked. I stared. I sent somebody and now they've told me who it is. It's your bodyguard. I would think I'd want to have a good relationship with him. It's another guy who's one of your mighty men who's risked his life for you. And the guy that you trust his counsel, the guy that you have counsel you and mentor you, it's his granddaughter. I'm stupid. I'm stupid. You know, I mean, that's where he is right now. It's, you know, it's like uh, Bonhoeffer says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, once lust enters the equation, God is no longer real. It's the way way people operate. It's the way people feel. Once lust has consumed you, God becomes unreal to you. So, here we are. David's not sent through sending people, by the way. It's going to take another step. And in verse... Excuse me, I can't see, I don't have glasses on, whatever verse it is. Then David, don't you hate it? I'm going to have to get one of those big print Bibles I'm resisting, I tell you, or wear glasses. Then David sent messengers, and why don't they make those numbers bigger? And David sent messengers to get her. David sends to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. There's one verse, it's verse 4, I remember it, I can't see it, but I remember it. Okay, what does David do? Send for her, get her, sleep with her. That Sounds like real love, doesn't it? No, that's real lust right there. I, he sees the woman, sends for her, get her, bring her to me, sleeps with her, and then he's going to send her back home. And we watch movies like that all the time, don't we? Well, that's the way it happens. And, and you know, and here's if you ever wonder if you're ever prone, if it's ever possible that you could do anything like this, Here's a good indication of how morally depraved we are, how much our sin nature is in us. Sometimes we're watching movies like that and we're going, yeah, go with her. It's like we want them to commit adultery. It's like we want them to have sex out of marriage. It's like we're going, yeah, yeah. It's like our inside. If we're really honest, that's how we know that we're all susceptible, just so you know that. And if you're sitting there, I don't do that. I don't believe you. You don't have a TV. And you do. Okay, I never watch that stuff. You are susceptible. All you got to do is speed. If you watch it enough, and soap operas count, ladies, okay? Don't tell me that. Oh, they're they're just you know. I I, I don't even pay attention. I'm just watching the storyline. Yeah, whatever. That is the storyline. <laughs> You're here thinking. Right, when do we get a real preacher around here? Anyway, that's right. I came here to learn some Bible. Then, then she went back home. And David has been in charge. I'm in control. It's under my authority. I'm the man, I tell you. I'm the man. Matter of fact, that term started in the Bible next chapter, chapter 12. Nathan's going to say, yeah, you the man. That's where that really started right there, okay? But right here, he's the man. I'm in control, and I, I can fix it. I can do it. And what happens? He gets he gets a couple of words. In Hebrew, it's two words. We may use three words in English, but these are the words that come back to him that rock his world. That He first has to recognize, okay, I'm not in complete control, but I'll get there. She goes, I'm pregnant. Whoa. Wasn't expecting that. And so the woman conceived and sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. And so David, again, we're going to keep going with this. All right, that didn't work. Let's go to plan B. Let me send some more people out and try to handle this. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Send me Uriah the Hittite. I think it's interesting that most of the time when David refers to Uriah, he calls him the Hittite. Now, I don't know this, and I'm, um, you know, basically speculating at this point. But could it be that David thought he was somewhat Lesser? Of a man or lesser of value because he wasn't a Jew. He was a Hittite. And, you know, they had already done battle with the Hittites and had overcome the Hittite nation. But God was using the nation of Israel as an instrument to be a light to other nations, to draw them to himself. And Uriah is one of those who saw the glory of Jehovah, Yahweh God. And he's been drawn there and he's become a part of the faith community. But he's a Hittite. You know, when we use that term today, it's usually a derogatory term, isn't it? Uh, that's Mark the Anglo. That's uh, Larry the the Hispanic. That's Martha the African-American. I mean, usually when we use that term, it's not favorable. Sometimes we may use it simply as identification, but a lot of times a little prejudice seeps through there. I almost wonder if that's David. Go get Uriah the Hittite. Yeah, I know he was a mighty man. I know he's done a lot for me, but he is a Hittite. He may have been justifying this in the back of his mind. And it continues here. And so Uriah the Hittite has been sent for. and when Uriah came to him, David asked him, How's Joab doing? How are things going with the war? How are the soldiers doing? Like he cares. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, go down to your house and wash your feet. What does that mean? Well, we would see that, and we think, well, he's hoping something will happen. No, he's doing more than hoping. Wash your feet is a euphemism for sleep with your wife. That's what it is. It's a euphemism. Let your wife wash your feet. So he's basically saying... Go home. Matter of fact, I'm going to send, I'm going to cater for you tonight. We'll see here in a couple of verses. I'm going, to, I'm going to send a gift and that gift will be a nice meal. Be with your wife. You've been out there in about that, you know, you're a young buck. It's time to go home and do that. He's thinking, all right, here's what I'll do. I'll get them to sleep together. Hey, problem solved. It's your rice, kid. Continue. So. Thus David said to Uriah, go down and be with your wife, let her wash your feet. And Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king, which was most uh, probably a food and dinner, was sent to him, wine. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. What is Uriah doing? Well, there was a Levitical code that you could, when you were engaged in war, uh, in active war, uh, that you would very often make an oath that you would not uh, sleep with a woman or eat delicacies until that particular battle was over. And it's more, uh, it's probably most likely that Uriah, being a, a valiant soldier, a man of valor, probably had taken that oath, and so he's not going to do it. And so what does he do? He goes and sleeps on the ground outside the palace where the guards are. And when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come a long distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open fields. <clears throat> well, first of all, all my compadres, all my, uh, all my other soldier friends are in the fields. My authorities are in the field. And on top of that, the ark of the covenant. Which to them was the very presence of God of Yahweh. It's all in the field. They're all in battle. How how can I how can I do that? Everything that I value and care about that, that's that's what's happening. I've, I've made an oath. I'm a man of integrity of character. It, it doesn't matter what people see. It's what I know. It's what I've decided. It's the commitment that I've made. How could you? How can I go to my house and eat and drink and be with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and to the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. I think it's interesting that the Scripture said that David made him drunk. David funneled it into him, basically. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on the mat, among his master's servants, and he did not go home. I remember Tommy Nelson one time saying, hey, Uriah wouldn't do drunk what David would do sober. Pretty interesting, isn't it? All right. It continues on. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. Now, I want you to go back to Sin Makes Us Stupid. I want you to think about this for a second. First of all, this man's got such high character that David can't manipulate him. He can't control it. So he's, by the way, David's at plan D now. He's about to get into plan F. Um, but he's in plan D at this point, trying to manipulate, certain, trying to get himself out of trouble. And he signs, hey, i got a guy with such high integrity, I, I, he's not going to falter in any way. So I'm going to have to take matters in my hand. I'm really going to have to control it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a letter. Sin makes you stupid. I'm going to write a letter and it's going to be in there and it's going to say, put your eye in the front and then draw back and let him be killed. He's writing this down. Let me just stop here for a moment. In my previous church, I, I had to, I was one of the ministers that got to deal with this. I'm trying to say, if you're going to be stupid, don't write it down and send it to people. When you're emotional and mad, don't get on the internet and send it because you don't get it back. It's out there forever. Don't do that. Think about what pictures you put on Facebook. Do you know everybody looks at them? I don't have Facebook, but people tell me you ought to go look and so and so. Don't do that. I'm, I, you know why we do it? Because we're stupid. Because sin makes us stupid. I know some of you going. I just, I don't think that's any of your business. Well, well, good. But I'm just. I'm, I'm at least I'd like your children to have intelligent parents. That's all I'm asking for right now. Okay. I want your children to grow up and people not go, well, that's one of the It puts everything on Facebook right there. Can you believe that? Do? I don't want your kids to have to worry. And you probably don't even think about that. Why? Because sin makes us stupid. All right? Don't write it down and send it out. David's writing it down. Why? Because he's consumed with lust and sin is killing him right now. So he's writing it down. And Joab's got it in his pocket now. You know what? He's never in control of Joab after this. His problem with Joab, Joab does things in direct opposition. To David's authority, and David can't do anything. Matter of fact, Joab's going to start right here. David said, send Uriah up to the front and let him get killed. You know what Joab's going to do? He's going to send a whole posse of men. There's going to be a group. We don't know how many, 30 or 40, but Joab's thinking, are you kidding me? It's going to look like I made this guy commit suicide if I just throw him out there. Hey, look, battle looks pretty fierce over there. They've got a wall over there. They're shooting darts. They're throwing bricks down there. you Go see if you can take them. No, he doesn't do that. He sends a group of men. And we see they die too. The wages of sin and death. You see the destruction that comes not just to David's life, not just to Uriah's household, but to many innocent victims who have no clue what's going on. But David keeps sending. He keeps abusing his power. He wrote a letter and he sent it and he wrote, put Uriah in the front line and where the fighting is the fierce, then withdraw and let him be struck down and die. Struck down and died, just so you know. Struck down almost always in scriptures means to, to be killed. But just so you know, Uriah, I'm gonna admit, I don't want him just struck down. I want to make sure he's dead. you got to make sure he's dead. And so while Joab was had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the, the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. You know what he just committed here? Adult abortion. That's what he did. Tommy mentioned abortion before. You know what? we got to deal with this. we got to get rid of him. This is not what I asked for. This is not what I planned. This was not on the agenda here. We've got to deal with it. And he's going to have to go. And that's exactly what David does right here. Uh, we can say what we want to. And I know that's a sensitive subject. But let me say this. The Bible is pretty clear about the sanctity of life. And we are not given the authority to tamper with it, to take it or remove it. We are not God. You know what sin is? Here's what sin is. Sin is when we determine we will be God. That's what sin is. I know better than God. I can handle this. I will be God. I will make the decision. I will be the authority. Send me the email. All right, let's continue here. And so here's where we are. So Joab sends David the full account of the battle. And uh, let me just tell you what he says here. He he instructs his message. He says, go back. Tell him what happened. The messenger, it wasn't always a good thing to be a messenger then, particularly if it was bad news. You didn't want to volunteer. Sometimes the king would lose it and kill you. And so it wasn't a good time to give bad messages. And this is a bad message. I want you to go back and tell him, hey, battle didn't go well. We lost a lot of men today. But tell him this. Tell him that Uriah the Hittite died as well. So the messenger comes back. He tells the king, the message, and he says, and Uriah the Hittite died. And you know what David does? David has the audacity to act like he's compassionate, like he's kind, like he's really kind. He says, you know, these things happen. Sometimes people die. Tell Joab it's okay. Just continue to fight and continue to press on, knowing full well that it's all his fault. Each one of those men, including Uriah, are dead today because of David's lust Because of David's abuse of authority. In verse 20, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned. That's a seven-day period. was typical. And after that time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house. And you hear, David's not going to get her. He's not going to check. Seven days over. Bring her on in. And she became his wife before him and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done just pleased the Lord. All of a sudden you see a, a... pivot right here. You see a complete change. Life. David has been living under the extreme blessing of God, but he's about to feel the wrath of God. The very next verse says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now next week we're going to talk about how do you rebuild your broken world when you sin and when you destroy your life as it is. How do you rebuild that? We're going to talk about that next week. But I, and I want you to know there's hope. And I know this is a message of which many uh, feel guilt and conviction over. Some because of the past and they've dealt with it. Some may be present and some in the future. But I want you to know there's hope. There's hope. But I want us to look at how this happened real briefly. Number one, what caused David to fall into adultery? Number one, I believe, because of arrogance. Because of the pride he had. Because of the control he thought he had. That he could look. That he could take yet another woman, that he could do it and there not be consequences. That is the height of arrogance, to think that you can sin and that you completely get away with it, that no one will find out and everything will be fine. That's where it started. Second was the idleness. We see that David's on his couch, he's in his bed, getting out of the afternoon, he's not with his troops, he's not encouraging them. <clears throat> he's at the wrong place, and he's got plenty of time. Can I tell you this? That's when people usually get in trouble, when they got time. Can I tell you this? Nobody ever gets in trouble at work. For looking at porn when they're really busy, it's always when you got free time. You know what I mean? You're not like, you got a deadline, a report. Get that porn over here first. No, you're you're getting your deadline done, and then it's all done. You got some free time. That's when it happens. That's when it happens. It's a good word for us as supervisors thinking, you know, keep your people busy. That's not a bad thing, okay? So the reality of it is, is when we have idle time, that's normally when it happens. Number three, lust. He's consumed with lust. Look at um, James. Chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. The Bible says this. This is exactly what happened today. And James is describing in detail how this sin is born, so to speak. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. He's dragged away. So that's actually a fishing term. It's like a lure. and, And then he's captured and they start to reel him in. And then after desire has conceived, remember when things started to really come unravel for David? When she said, when it said that she conceived, she said, I'm pregnant. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. And oh, how David will suffer. So we see the lust factor has consumed him. He's not thinking clearly. He's not thinking about God, as Bonhoeffer states. And then the spirit of entitlement. Spirit of entitlement. David could be thinking, I mean, look what I've accomplished. I mean, I killed a flipping giant for them. I mean, I I won all our battles. I was good to Saul. You know, I could have been king a long time ago. But I didn't want to lift my hand against God's anointing. And Saul's son, Jonathan, I had a covenant with him. I'm taking care of his handicapped child right now. I mean, look, at he eats at my table every night. I mean, look what I've done. Look at all. I I should be able to. I am entitled. I deserve. Boy, if there's a spirit that I don't want to teach my children, it's that one right there. I deserve it. I should get it. You know, you know, sometimes I hear my six-year-old son say stuff like that. Uh, I deserve this. I'm thinking, what do you deserve? You know, the other day saying, you know, my, my daughter shouldn't, you know, she doesn't need money. She doesn't deserve it. And you do. Uh, you know, and we get into this and, you know, we, we're raising a generation, if we're not careful, they think, um, you know, I make my bed, I deserve to be paid. You know, and, and everything I do, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. Remember when David was younger, the spirit of courage. He didn't think he deserved anything. He went off to fight Goliath when he thought, when he certainly thought, certainly thought, you know, I may die from this, and I'm a nobody, and nobody's expecting me to win. The odds are greatly against me. Nobody's betting on me, but I'm going out of my out of my character and out of my faith. Now, David is out of flesh, out of pride, out of ego. One is a commitment of faith, a decision of faith and value. The other one is of lust and pride. You see the contrast that's happened in David's life? And so now he's in that spirit of entitlement, and that's a very dangerous place for us to be. You know, I can take this from my employer. I mean, look what i do for them. You know, just one time, it won't hurt. That's exactly what happened to David, and it cost him. Proverbs sixteen nine says, In the heart of in his heart, man plans his course, but the Lord determines his step. We may think that we are in control, but the real truth of it is God will let us go. And he'll give us some boundaries to operate in. And sometimes in his permissive will, he allows us to sin greatly. But can I tell you, there's still boundaries. And those boundaries are going to begin to shrink. And be sure that your sin will find you out at some point, and David will pay the rest of his life unfortunately, so some key, key truths key realities adultery's never right, it's never justifiable. You can't justify it, and it's always destructive. It costs David his respect, loyal friends, it cost him friendships, it cost him family, it cost him his kingdom. For a time, it cost him his children. He never gets full respect back of his children after all of this. Uh, he has is in constant turmoil in his family. So, prevention steps. What can I do? First of all, admit that it can happen to you. Don't act like, I would never do that. It never happened to me. David probably thought that. You don't think David thought that in his young life? Recognize that if you feed those sins in your life you feed that addiction you feed that resentment you feed that bitterness you feed that selfishness it can happen to you number two don't put yourself in tempting situations where you know you're going to be asked to compromise keep killing sin or sin will keep killing you be accountable to someone who are you accountable to in your life whether it be your spouse or a close friend who are you accountable to and if you're a man we certainly want to help you with that we certainly are willing to do that. Get a filter. If you don't have a filter on your computer, shame on you. Get a filter on your computer. I don't care how old you are. If you're six or you're 56 or 106, you ought to have either a filter or some kind of accountability software. Um, I, I mentioned to you I, the last service. You know, a friend of mine. I got one of those calls a few months ago, who's a minister, and said, "Man, I, I've just really messed up. And I was looking at pornography, and we start talking, so I start asking questions. His wife found it." And, and guess where it was? It was on his church computer. And I'm going, okay. I'm going to come hit you in the face so hard that it's going to kill you, just because you're so stupid. I mean, that's what it does, isn't it? Sin just makes you like that. So now I get a report of everything he said. His wife gets a report, and just so you know, I've got people that get reports on everything that I see. Okay, and I ask every time a male comes on staff to get on the accountability software that we have, uh, so that we know. And, and yeah, I know you can. Figure out ways to get around that. I personally am not smart enough. I can barely turn my computer on. But there, I know people are. You've got to start somewhere. And so I just think that's important. Um, And then lastly, um, confess your sin before God and deal with it. If you're in that situation, confess it and and deal with it now. You know, I can can throw out some names of people like John Edwards. Or I call out the name Ted Haggard. Or I call out the name Tiger Woods. If these guys would have just said, okay, I was wrong. But what they did is they tried to lie, to capture the lie, to put on top of the lie, to hide the lie. And they just built this giant false image. And the lies were all stacked on top of each other until it all came from. The, and each one of them had severe consequences. Two of them lost their, their families and their wives. You know, Ted Haggard finally became honest. And now he's going door to door, knocking on doors, trying to do sales door to door. And the other two just completely lost it. That happened because if they would have been honest in the front, I mean, I.E.C. see Josh Hamilton and some other folks, hey, yeah, there'll be consequences, but we can work through this. But what happens is your whole character is built that, and there's nothing left to trust. And that's exactly what happened to David, and it's exactly what can happen to you and can happen to me. I, I know I've read this before, but I want to close with this. I know it's strong. But Chuck Swindoll... Uh, wrote this a while back and I just think it bears repeating on the consequences for us today of adultery and immorality. Your mate will experience the anguish of betrayal, shame, rejection, and heartache and loneliness. No amount of repentance will soften those blows. Your mate can never again say that you are the model of fidelity. Suspicion will rob her or him of trust. Your escapes will introduce to your, to your life and your mate's life the very real probability of sexually transmitted diseases. The total devastation your sinful actions will bring to your children is immeasurable. Their growth, innocence, trust, healthy outlook on life will be severely and permanently damaged. The heartache you will cause your parents, your family, and your peers is indescribable. The embarrassment of facing other Christians who once appreciated you, respected you, and trusted you is overwhelming. If you're engaged in ministry, you will suffer the immediate loss of your job and the support of those with whom you work. The dark shadow will accompany you everywhere forever. Forgiveness won't erase it. You will, Your fall will give others a license to do the same. The inner peace you enjoyed will be gone. You will never be able to erase the fall from your mind or others' minds. They will remain indelibly etched on your life's record regardless of your later return to your senses. The name of Christ, whom you honored, will be tarnished, giving the enemies of faith further reason to sneer and jeer. Let's pray. Father, I know this is a hard message. God, I thank you that you op- you offer hope and that you offer forgiveness to no matter what our sin is. And Lord, I pray that you would draw those who need to enter into the grace and forgiveness of the Lord today. But Lord, for those who are struggling, for those who are being tempted at this time for those who are trying to cover, I pray, God, that You would speak truth into their heart, conviction in their hearts, and that they would deal with this today, not tomorrow, not next week, but they would talk to someone today. They would confess to You and talk to a real person and begin the process of reestablishing truth and a credible life, a life of character. God, I pray that no one has to suffer the severe consequences that David did. But Lord, I know unless we confess our sins before You and pray and ask for forgiveness, that, uh, that is certainly our path, for us, for particularly for those of us who call ourselves believers in Jesus. So Lord, for Your sake, for Your glory, for Your honor, God, I pray that You would do surgery in our souls today, that You would bring about light and truth. We thank You for this time. In Your name we pray. Amen.